Section 5 of The Golden Bough, Part 3, The Dying God, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 2, Part 4, Octennial Tenure of the Kingship. Limited Tenure of the Kingship in Ancient Greece. There are some grounds for believing that the reign of many ancient Greek kings was limited to eight years, or at least that at the end of every period of eight years a new consecration, a fresh outpouring of the divine grace, was regarded as necessary in order to enable them to discharge their civil and religious duties. The Spartan kings appear formerly to have held office for periods of eight years only. Thus it was a rule of the Spartan constitution that every eighth year the ephors should choose a clear and moonless night, and sitting down observe the sky in silence. If during their virtual they saw a meteor or a shooting star, they inferred the king has sinned against the deity, and they suspended him from his function until the Delphic or Olympic oracle should reinstate him in them. This custom, which has all the air of great antiquity, was not suffered to remain a dead letter, even the last period of the Spartan monarchy. For in the third century before our era, a king, who had rendered himself obnoxious to the reforming party, was actually deposed on various trumped-up charges, among which the allegation that the ominous sign had been seen in the sky took a prominent place. When we compare this custom with the evidence to be presently adduced from the eight years' tenure of the kinship in Greece, we shall probably agree with K. O. Miller that the quaint Spartan practice was seen much more than a mere antiquarian curiosity. It was the attenuated survival of an institution which may once have had great significance and throw as an important light on the restrictions and limitations anciently imposed by religion on the Dorian kingship. What exactly was the import of a meteor? In the opinion of the old Dorians, we can hardly hope to determine. One thing only is clear. They regarded as a portent of so curious and threatening a kind as appearance under certain circumstances justified and even require the deposition of their king. The dread of meteor is shared by savages. This exaggerated dread of so simple a natural phenomenon is shared by many savages at the present day, and we shall hardly err in supposing that the Spartans inherited from their barbarous ancestors, who may have watched with consternation on many a starry night among the woods of Germany, the flashing of a meteor through the sky. It may be well even at the cost of a digression, to illustrate this primitive superstition by examples. Superstitions of the Australian Aborigines as to Shooting Stars Thus, shooting stars and meteors are viewed with apprehension by the natives of the Andaman Islands, who suppose them to be lighted faggots hurled into the air by the malignant spirit of the woods in order to ascertain the whereabouts of any unhappy white in his vicinity. Hence they happen to be away from their camp when the meteor is seen. They hide themselves and remain silent for a little before they venture to resume the work they are at. For example, if they are out fishing, they will crouch at the bottom of the boat. The natives of the Tully River in Queensland believe falling stars to be the fire sticks carried about by the spirits of dead enemies. When they see one shooting through the air, they take it as a sign that an enemy is near, and accordingly they shout and make as much noise as they can. Next morning they all go out in the direction in which the star fell and look for the tracks of their foe. The terrible tribe of Queensland thought that a falling star was a medicine man flying through the air and dropping his flying stick to kill somebody. If there was a sick man in the camp, they regarded him as doomed. The Nagarigo of New South Wales believed the fall of a meteor to be token the place where their foes were mustering for war. The Katish tribe of Central Australia imagine that the fall of a star marks the whereabouts of a man who has killed another by means of a magical pointing stick or bone. If a member of any group has been killed in this way, his friends watch for the descent of a meteor, march in that direction, slay an enemy there, and leave his body lying on the ground. The friends of the murdered man understand what has happened and bury his body where the star fell, for they recognize the spot by the softness of the earth. The Mura tribe of northern Australia suppose the falling star to be one of two hostile spirits, father and son, who live up in the sky and come down occasionally to do harm to men. In this tribe the profession of medicine man is strictly hereditary. In their stock which he has the falling star for its totem, if these wizards had ever developed into kings, 
the descent of a meteor at certain times might have had the same fatal significance for them as for the kings of sparta the tayu islanders to the west of the bismarck archipelago make war in the direction in which they have observed a start of all probably for a reason like that which includes the Katish to do the same superstitions of the negroes and other african races as to shooting stars when the Barongo of South Africa see a shooting star, they spit on the ground to avert the evil omen and cry, Go away, go away all alone. By this they mean that the light, which is so soon to disappear, is not to take them with it, but to go and die by itself. So when a Messiah perceives the flash of a meteor, he spits several times and says, Be lost, go in the direction of the enemy, on which he adds, Stay away from me. The Namaquas, greatly afraid of the meteor, which is vulgarly called a falling star they consider it a sign that sickness is coming upon the cattle and to escape it they will immediately drive them to some other parts of the country they call out to the star how many cattle they have and beg for it not to send sickness the bequanas are also much alarmed at the appearance of a meteor if they happen to be dancing in the open air at the time they will instantly desist and retire hastily to their huts the Iri negroes of guinea regard a falling star as a powerful divinity, and worship it as one of their natural gods, by the name of Naikpla, or Naikpla. In their opinion, the falling star is especially a war god who marches at the head of the host and leads it back to victory, riding like Castor and Pollux on horseback. But he is also a rain god, and the showers are sent by him from the sky. Special priests are devoted to his worship, and a chief priest at their head who resides in the capital. They are known by the red staves which they carry, and by the high pointed caps woven on threads and palm leaves which they wear on their heads. In times of drought, they call upon their god by night with wild howls. Once a year an ox is sacrificed to him at the capital, and the priests consume the flesh. On this occasion the people smear themselves with the pollen of a certain plant, and go in procession through the towns and villages, singing, dancing and beating drums superstitions of the american indians as to shooting stars by some indians of california meteors were called children of the moon and whenever young women saw one of them they fell to the ground and covered their heads fearing that if the meteors saw them their faces would become ugly and diseased the tarahumeras of mexico fancied that a shooting star is a dead sorcerer coming to harm a man who harmed him in life hence when they see one they huddle together and scream for terror when a German traveller was living with the Bororos of central Brazil, a splendid meteor fell, spreading dismay through the Indian village. It was believed to be the soul of a dead medicine man, who suddenly appeared in this form to announce that he wanted meat, and that, as a preliminary measure, he proposed to visit some body with an attack of dysentery. Its appearance was greeted with yells from a hundred throats. Men, women and children swarmed out of their huts like ants whose nests had been disturbed, and soon watchfires blazed round which at a little distance groups of dusky figures gathered while in the middle thrown to strong relief by the flickering light of the fire two red-painted sorcerers reeled and staggered in a state of frantic excitement snorting and spitting towards the quarter of the sky where the meteor had run its brief but brilliant course pressing his right hand to his yelling mouth each of them held aloft in his extended left by way of propitating the angry star a bundle of cigarettes there they seemed to say all that tobacco we given to warn off the impending visitation. Woe to you, if you do not leave us in peace. The Lengua Indians of the Grand Chaco also stand in great fear of meteors, imagining them to be stones hurled from heaven and the wicked sorcerers who have done people to death by their charms. When the Abbey Bones beheld a meteor flashing or heard thunder rolling in the sky, they imagined that one of their medicine men had died, and that a flash of light and the pale of thunder were part of his funeral honours. Shooting stars regarded as demons. When the Lower Linden Islanders see a shooting star, they make a great noise, for they think it is the old woman who lives in the moon coming down to earth to catch somebody who may relieve her of her duties in the moon while she goes away to the happy spirit land. In Vedic India, a meteor was believed to be the embodiment of a demon, and on its appearance, certain hymns or incantations supposed to possess the power of killing demons or is cited for the purpose of expiating the prodigy. To this day in India, when women see a falling star, 
they spit thrice to scare the demon. Some of the Esonians of the present time regard shooting stars as evil spirits. It is a Mohammedan belief that falling stars are demons or jinn who have attempted to scale the sky and being repulsed by the angels of stones are hurled headlong flaming from the celestial vault. Hence every true believer at sight of a meteor should say, I take refuge with God from the stone devil. Shooting stars associated with the souls of the dead. A widespread superstition, of which some examples have already been given, associates meteors or falling stars with the souls of the dead. Often they are believed to be the spirits that departed on their way to the other world. The mariners imagine that at death the soul leaves the body and goes to the nether world in the form of a falling star. The Kingsville Islanders deemed a shooting star an omen of death for some member of the family which occupied the part of the council house nearest to the point of the sky whence the media took its flight. If the star was followed by a train of light, it foretold the death of a woman, if not the death of a man. When the Watjobaluk tribe of Victoria see a shooting star, they think it is falling with the heart of a man who has been caught by a sorcerer and deprived of his fat. One evening when Mr. Howard was talking with an Australian black, a bright meteor was seen shooting through the sky. The native watched it and remarked, An old black fellow has fallen down there. Among the Erinthari tribe of Queensland, the ideas on this subject were even more definite. They thought that after death they went to a place away among the stars, and that to reach it they had to climb up a rope. When they had clambered up, they let go the rope which as it fell from heaven appeared to people on earth as a falling star. The natives of the Prince of Wales Islands, of Queenland, are much afraid of shooting stars, for they believe them to be ghosts which, in breaking up, produce young ones of their own kind. The natives of the Gazelle Peninsula in New Britain think that meteors are the souls of people who have been murdered or eaten. So at the sight of a meteor flashing, they cry out, the ghost of a murdered man. According to the Sulker of New Britain, meteors are souls which have been flung into the air in order to plunge into the sea, and the train of light which they leave behind them is a burning tail of dry coconut leaves which has been tied to them by other souls in order to help them to wing their way through the air. The Kafirs of South Africa often say that a shooting star is a sign of the death of some chief, and at sight of it they will spit on the ground as a mark of friendly feeling towards a dead man. Similarly, the Abubaba of the Congo Valley think that a chief will die in the village into which a star appears to fall, unless the danger of death be averted by a particular dance. In the opinion of the Maasai, the fall of a meteor signifies the death of someone, and sight of it they pray that the victim may be one of their enemies. Suppose relation of the stars to men. The Wambagwe of Eastern Africa fancy that the stars are men, of whom one dies whenever a star is seen to fall. The Tene Indians and the Tichiklitlikuskmos of Northeastern America believe that human life on earth is influenced by the stars, and they take a shooting star to be a sign that someone has died. The Lolos, an Aboriginal tribe of Western China, hold that for each person on earth there is a corresponding star in the sky. Hence, when a man is ill, they sacrifice wine to his star and light four and twenty lamps outside his room. On the day after the funeral, they dig a hole in the chamber of death and pray the dead man's star to descend and be buried in it. If this precaution were not taken, the star might fall and hit somebody and hurt him very much. In classical antiquity, there was a popular notion that every human being had his own star in the sky which shone bright or dim according to his good or evil fortune and fell in the form of a meteor when he died. Modern European Beliefs as to Meteors Superstitions of the same sort are still commonly to be met with in Europe. This, in some parts of Germany, they say that at the birth of a man, a new star is set in the sky, and that, as it burns brilliantly or faintly, he grows rich or poor. Finally, when he dies, it drops from the sky in the likeness of a shooting star. Similarly, in Brittany, Transylvania, Bohemia, the Abruzzi, the Rob Magna, and the Estonian islands of Wersel, it is thought by some that every man has his own particular star in the sky, and that when it falls in the shape of a meteor, he expires. 
Alike believe is entertained by Polish Jews. In Styria, they say that when a shooting star is seen, a man has just died, or a poor soul has been released from purgatory. The Estonians believe that if anyone sees a falling star on New Year's night, he will die or be visited by a serious illness that year. In Belgium, and many parts of France, the people suppose that a meteor is a soul which has just quitted the body, sometimes that it is specially the soul of an unbaptized event, or of someone who has died without absolution. Outside of it they say that you should cross yourself and pray, or that if you wish for something while the star is falling, you'll be sure to get it. Among the Vosges mountains in the warm nights of July, it is not uncommon to see whole showers of shooting stars. It is generally agreed that these stars are souls, but some difference of opinion exists as to whether they are souls just taking leave of earth, or tortured by the fires of purgatory, or on their passage from purgatory to heaven. The last and most cheering of these views is held by the French peasantry of Beers and Perche, and by the Italian peasantry of the Abruzzi, and charitable people pray for the deliverance of a soul at the sight of a falling star. The downward direction of its flight might naturally suggest a different goal, and accordingly other people have seen in the transient flame of a meteor the descent of a soul from heaven to be born on earth. Various beliefs as to stars and meteors. In the Punjab, for example, Hindus believe that the length of a soul's residence in the realms of bliss is exactly proportioned to the sums which the man distributed in charity during his life, and when these are exhausted, his time in heaven is up, and down he comes. In Polynesia, a shooting star was held to be the flight of a spirit, and to present the birth of a great prince. The Mandans in North America fancied that the stars were dead people, and that when a woman was brought to bed, a star fell from heaven, and entering into her, was born as a child. On the Bilok frontier of the Punjab, each man is held to have his star, and he may not journey in particular directions when his star is in certain positions. If duty compels him to travel in the forbidden direction, he takes care before setting, out to bury a star, or rather a figure of it, cut out of cloth, so that it may not see what he is doing. The Fall of the King's Star Which, if any of these superstitions, moved the barbarous Doranians of old to depose their kings whenever, at a certain season, a meteor flamed in the sky, we cannot say. Perhaps they had a vague general notion that its appearance signified the dissatisfaction of the higher powers with the state of the commonwealth, and since in primitive society the king is commonly held responsible for all untoward events, whatever their origin, the natural course was to relieve him of duties which he had proved himself incapable of discharging. But it may be that the idea in the minds of these rude barbarians was not definite. Possibly, like some people in Europe at the present day, they thought that every man had his star in the sky, and that he must die when it fell. The king would be no exception to the rule, and on a certain night of a certain year, at the end of a cycle, it might be customary to watch the sky in order to mark whether the king's star was still on the ascent or near its setting. The appearance of the meteor on such a night of a star precipitated from the celestial vault might prove the king not merely a symbol but a sentence of death. It might be the warrant for his execution. Reasons for limiting a king's reign to eight years if the tenure of the regal office was formally limited among the Spartans to eight years, we may naturally ask, why was the precise period selected as the measure of a king's reign? The reason is probably to be found in those astronomical considerations which determined the early Greek calendar. The difficulty of reconciling lunar with solar time is one of the standing puzzles which has taxed the ingenuity of men who are emerging from barbarism. The octennial cycle based on an attempt to reconcile solar and lunar time. Now, an octennial cycle is the shortest period at the end of which sun and moon really mark time together after overlapping, so to say, throughout the whole of the interval. Thus, for example, it is only once in every eight years that the full moon coincides with the longest or shortest day. As this coincidence can be observed with the aid of a simple dial, the observation is naturally one of the first to furnish a base for a calendar which shall bring lunar and solar times into tolerable, though not exact, harmony. But in early days, the proper adjustment of the calendar is a matter of religious concern. 
since on it depends our knowledge of the right seasons for propitating the deities whose favour is indispensable to the welfare of the community. No wonder, therefore, that the king, as a chief priest of the state, or as himself a god, should be liable to deposition or death at the end of an astronomical period. When the great luminaries had run their course on high, and were about to renew the heavenly race, it might well be thought that the king should renew his divine energies, or prove them unabated, under pain of making room for a more rigorous successor. In southern India, as we have seen, the king's reign and life terminated with the revolution of the planet Jupiter round the sun. In Greece, on the other hand, the king's fate seems to have hung in the balance at the end of every eight years, ready to fly up and kick the beam as soon as the opposite scale was loaded with a falling star. The Octennial Cycle in Relation to the Greek Doctrine of Rebirth the same train of thought may explain an ancient Greek custom which appears to have required that a homicide should be banished from his country and do penance for a period of eight or nine years. With the beginning of a new cycle, or great year, as it was called, it might be thought that all nature was regenerate, all old scores wiped out. According to Pindar, the dead whose guilt has been purged away by an abode of eight years in the netherworld were born again on earth in the ninth year, as glorious kings, athletes, and sages. The doctrine may well be an old popular belief, rather than a mere poetical fancy. If so, it would supply a fresh reason for the banishment of a homicide during the years that the angry ghost of his victim might, at any moment, issue from its prison house and pounce on him. Once the perturbed spirit had been happily reborn, he might be supposed to forgive, if not to forget, the man who had done him an injury in a former life. The Octennial Cycle at Chosos in Crete Whatever its origin may have been, the cycle of eight years appears to have coincided with the normal length of the king's reign in other parts of Greece besides Sparta. King Minos and Zeus Thus Minos, king of Knossos in Crete, whose great palace has been unearthed in recent years, is said to have held office for periods of eight years together. At the end of each period he retired for a season to the oracular cave on Mount Ida, and there communed with his divine father Zeus, giving him an account of his kinship in the years that were past, and receiving from him instructions for his guidance in those which were to come. The tradition plainly implies that at the end of every eight years the king's sacred powers needed to be renewed by intercourse with the Godhead, and that without such a renewal he would have forfeited his right to the throne. Sacred marriage of the king and queen of Gnosis in the form of bull and cow as symbols of the sun and moon. We may surmise that among the solemn ceremonies which mark the beginning or the end of the eight-year cycle, the sacred marriage of the king with the queen played an important part, and that in his marriage we have the true explanation of the strange legend of Pasiphae and the bull. It is said that Persephone, the wife of King Minos, fell in love with a wondrous white bull which rose from the sea, and in order to gratify her unnatural passion, the artist Daedalus constructed a hollow wooden cow covered with a cow's hide in which the lovesick queen was hidden while the bull mounted it. The result of their union was the Minotaur, a monster with the body of a man and the head of a bull whom the king shut up in the labyrinth a building full of such winding and intricate passages that the prisoner might roam in it for ever without finding a way out. The legend appears to reflect a mythical marriage of the sun and moon, which was acted as a solemn rite by the king and queen of Gnosis, wearing the masks of a bull and cow respectively. To a pastoral people, a bull is the most natural type of vigorous reproductive energy, and as such is a fitting emblem of the sun. Islanders who, like many of the Cretans, see the sun rising daily from the sea, might really compare him to a white bull issuing from the waves. Indeed, we are expressly told that the Cretans called the sun a bull. Similarly, in ancient Egypt, the sacred bull Nevis of Heliopolis, the city of the sun, was deemed an incarnation of the sun god, and for thousands of years the kings of Egypt delighted to be styled mighty bull, many of them inscribed the title in their Serek, in cognizance, which set forth their names in their character of descendants of Horus. The identification of Pasiphae, she who shines on all, with the moon, was made long ago by Pausanias, who saw her image among, with that of the sun, in a sanctuary 
on that wild rocky coast of Messenia, where the great range of Tegetus descends seaward in a long line of naked crags. The horns of the waxing or waning moon naturally suggest the resemblance of a luminary to a white cow. Hence the ancients represented the goddess of the moon drawn by a team of white cattle. When we remember that at the court of Egypt the king and queen figured as god and goddess in solemn masquerades, where the parts of animal-headed deities were played by masked men and women, we need have no difficulty in imagining that similar dramas may have been performed at the court of a Cretan king, whether we suppose them to have been imported from Egypt or to have an independent origin. The same myth and custom of the marriage of the sun and moon appear in the stories of Zeus and Europa, of Minos and Britomatis. The stories of Zeus and Europa, and of Minos and Britomatis, of Dictina, appear to be only different expressions of the same myth, different echoes of the same custom. The moon rising from the sea was the fair maiden Europa coming across the heaving billows from the far eastern land of Phoenicia, born or pursued by a suitor, the solar bull. The moon setting in the western waves was a coy Britomatis, or Dictina, who plunged into the sea to escape the warm embrace of her lover Minos, himself the sun. The story how the drowning maiden was drawn up in a fisherman's net may well be, as some have thought, the explanation given by a simple seafaring folk of the moon's reappearance on the sea in the east after she had sunk into it in the west. To the mythical fancy of the ancients, the moon was a coy or a wanton maiden who either fled from or pursued the sun every month till the figurative was overtaken and the lovers enjoyed each other's company at the time when the luminaries are in conjunction, namely in the interval between the old and the new moon. The conjunction of the sun and moon regarded as the best time for marriages. Hence on the principle of sympathetic magic, that interval was considered the time most favourable for human marriages. When the sun and moon are wedded in the sky, men and women should be wedded on earth. And for the same reason, the ancients chose the interlunar day for the celebration of the sacred marriages of gods and goddesses. Similar beliefs and customs based on them have been noted among other peoples. It is likely, therefore, that a king and queen, who represented the sun and moon, may have been expected to exercise their conjugal rights above all at the time when the moon was thought to rest in the arms of the sun. Octennial marriage of the king and queen as representatives of the sun and moon. However that may have been, it would be natural that their union should be consummated with unusual solemnity every eight years, when the two great luminaries, so to say, meet and mark time together once more after diverging from each other more or less throughout the interval. It is true that sun and moon are in conjunction once every month, but every month their conjunction takes place at a different point in the sky, until eight revolving years have brought them together again in the same heavenly bridal chamber where they first met. Octennial tribute of youths and maidens probably required as a means of renewing the sun's fire by human sacrifices. Without being unduly rash, we may surmise that the tribute of seven youths and seven maidens from the Athenians were bound to send to Minos every eight years had some connection with the renewal of the king's power for another octennial cycle. Traditions varied as the fate which awaited the lads and damsels on their arrival in Crete, but the common view appears to have been that they were shut up in the labyrinth, there to be devoured by the Minotaur, or at least to be imprisoned for life. The Minotaur, a bull-headed image of the sun. Perhaps they were sacrificed by being roasted alive in a bronze image of a bull, or a bull-headed man, in order to renew the strength of the king and of the sun, whom he personated. This at all events is suggested by the legend of Talos, a bronze man who clutched people to his breast and leaped with them into the fire so that they were roasted alive. He is said to have been given by Zeus to Europa, or by Hephaestus to Minos, to guard the island of Crete, which he patrolled thrice daily. According to one account, he was a bull. According to another, he was a son. Probably he was identical with the Minotaur, and stripped of his mythical features was nothing but a bronze image of the sun represented as a man with a bull's head. 
In order to renew the solar fires, human victims may have been sacrificed to the idol by being roasted in its hollow body, or placed on its sleeping hands, and allowed to roll into a pit of fire. It was in the latter fashion that the Carthaginians sacrificed their offspring to Moloch. The children were laid in the hands of a calf-headed image of bronze, which they slid into a fiery oven, while the people danced to the musical flutes and timbrels to drown the shrieks of the burning victims. The resemblance which the Cretan traditions bear to the Carthaginian practice suggests that the worship associated with the names of Minos and the Minotaur may have been powerfully influenced by that of a Semitic Baal. In the tradition of Phalaris, tyrant of Agrigenitum and his brazen bull, we may have an echo of similar rites in Sicily, where the Carthaginian power struck deep roots. Dance the Youths and Maidens at Gnosis but perhaps the youths and maidens who were sent across the sea to Gnosis had to perform certain religious duties before they were cast into the fiery furnace. The same cunning artist Daedalus, who planned the labyrinth and contrived the wooden cow for Passive, was said to have made a dance for Ariande, daughter of Menos. It represented youths and maidens dancing in ranks, the youths armed with golden swords, the maidens crowned with garlands. Moreover, when Theseus landed with Ariane in Delos on his return from Crete, he and his young companions, whom he had rescued from the Minotaur, are said to have danced a mazy dance in imitation of the intricate windings of the labyrinth. On account of its sinuous turns, the dance is called the Crane. Taken together, these two traditions suggest that the youths and maidens who were sent to Gnosis had to dance the labyrinth before they were sacrificed to the bull-headed image. At all events, there are good grounds for thinking that there was a famous dance which the ancients regularly associated with the Cretan labyrinth. The Game of Troy Among the Romans that dance appears to have been known from the earliest times by the name of Troy or the Game of Troy. Tradition ran that it was imported into Italy by Aeneas, who transmitted it through his son Ascanius to the Alban kings, who in their turn handed it down to the Romans. It was performed by bands of armed youths on horseback. Virgil compares her complicated evolutions to the windings of the Cretan labyrinth, and in the comparison it is more than a mere poetical flourish appears from a drawing on a very ancient Etruscan vase found at Tracliatella. The drawing represents the procession of seven beardless warriors dancing, accompanied by two armed riders on horseback, who are also beardless. An inscription proves that the scene depicted is a game of Troy, and attached to the procession is a figure of the Cretan labyrinth, the pattern of which is well known from coins of Gnosis on which is often represented. The same pattern identified by the inscription, Labyrinthius Hic Habitat Minotaurus, is scratched on wall at Pompeii, and is also worked in mosaic on the floor of Roman apartments with the figure of Thesis and the Minotaur in the middle. Roman boys appear to have drawn the very same pattern on the ground and to have played a game on it, probably a miniature game of Troy. Labyrinths of similar type occur as decorations on the floors of old churches where they are known as the Road of Jerusalem. There are useful positions. The garden mazes of the Renaissance were modelled on them. Moreover, they are found very commonly in the north of Europe, marked out either by raised bands of turf or by rows of stones. Such labyrinths can be seen in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and the south coast of Russian Lapland, and even Iceland. They go by various names, such as Babylon, Wellenshaus, Trojeborg, Troberg, and so forth. Some of which clearly indicate their connection with the ancient game of Troy. They use for children's games. The dance is perhaps an imitation of the sun's course in the sky. A dance or game which has thus spread over Europe and survived in a fashion to modern times must have been very popular, and bearing in mind how often, with the decay of old face, the serious rites and patience of grown people have degenerated into the sports of children. We may reasonably ask whether Ariadne's dance with the game of Troy may not have had its origin in religious ritual. The ancients connected it with Gnosis and the Minotaur. Now we have seen reason to hold with many other scholars, that Gnosis was a seat of a great worship of the sun, and the Minotaur was a representative or embodiment of the sun god. May not then Ariadne's dance have been an imitation of the sun's course in the sky? And may not its intention have been, by means of sympathetic magic, to aid the great luminary to run his race on high? 
we have seen that during an eclipse of the sun the chilcotinidians walk in a circle leaning on staves apparently to assist the labouring orb in egypt also the king who embodied the sun god seems to have solemnly walked round the walls of a temple for the sake of helping the sun on its way if there is any truth in this conjecture it would seem to follow that the sinuous lines of the labyrinth which the dancers followed in their evolutions may have represented the ecliptic the sun's apparent annual path in the sky it is some confirmation of this view that on coins of Gnosis the sun or a star appears in the middle of the labyrinth, the place which, one of the coins, is occupied by the Minotaur. Conclusions as to the King of Gnosis On the whole, the foregoing evidence, slight and fragmentary as it is, points to the conclusion that in Gnosis the king represented the sun god, and that every eight years his divine powers were renewed at a great festival which comprised first the sacrifice of human victims by fire to a bull-headed image of the sun and second the marriage of the king disguised as a bull to the queen disguised as a cow the two personated respectively the sun and the moon octennial festivals of the crowning at delphi and the laurel bearing at thebes whatever may be thought of these speculations we know that many solemn rites were celebrated by the ancient greeks at intervals of eight years amongst them two deserve to be noticed here because it has been recently suggested with some appearance of probability that they were based on an octennial tenure of the kingship one was the festival of the crowning at delphi the other was a festival of the laurel bearing at thebes in their general features the two festivals seem to have been resembled each other very closely both represented dramatically the slaying of a water dragon both represented dramatically the slaying of a great water dragon by a god or hero. In both, the lad who played the part of the victorious god or hero crowned his brows with a wreath of sacred laurel and to submit to a penance and purification for the slaughter of the beast. At Delphi, the legendary slayer of the dragon was Apollo. At Thebes, he was Cadmus. At both places, the legendary penance for the slaughter seems to have been servitude for eight years. The evidence for the rites of the Delphi festival is fairly complete, but for the Theban festivals it has been eked out by vase paintings which represent Cadmus crowning with the laurel preparing to attack the dragon or actually in combat with the monster. While goddesses bend over the champion holding out wreaths of laurel to him as the maid of victory. It is true that in historical times Apollo appears to have ousted Cadmus from the festival, though not from the myth. But at Thebes, the god was plainly a late intruder, for his temple lay outside the walls, whereas the most ancient sanctuary stood in the oldest part of the city, the low hill which took its name of Cadmia, from the genuine Thebian hero Cadmus. It is not impossible that at Delphi also, and perhaps at other places where the same drama was acted, Apollo may have displaced the old local hero in the honourable office of Dragon Slayer. Both at Delphi and Thebes, the dragon seems to have guarded the oracular spring and the oracular tree. Both at Thebes and at Delphi, the dragon guarded a spring, the water which was probably deemed oracular. At Delphi, the sacred spring may have been either Casotis or the more famed Castelli, which issues from a narrow gorge, shut in by rocky walls of tremendous height, a little to the east of Apollo's temple. The waters of both were thought to be endowed with prophetic power, Probably, too, the monster was supposed to keep watch and ward over the sacred laurel, which the victor in the combat wreathed his brows. For in vase paintings, the Theban dragon appears coiled beside the holy tree, and Europeans describe the Delphic dragons covered with by a leafy laurel. The Crown of Laurel and the Crown of Oak At all oracular seats of Apollo, his priestess drink of the sacred spring and chewed the sacred laurel before she prophesied. Thus it would seem that the dragon, which at Delphi is expressly said to have been the guardian of the oracle, had, in his custody, both the instruments of divination, the holy tree, and the holy water. We are reminded of the dragon or serpent, slain by Hercules, which guarded the golden apples of the Hesperides in the Happy Garden. At Delphi, the oldest secretary appears, as Mr. A. B. Cook has pointed out, to have been not a laurel but an oak. For we are told that originally the victors in the Phaethian games at Delphi wore crowns of oak leaves, since the laurel had not yet been created. 
the festival of crowning at Delphi originally identical with the Pythian Games. Now, like the festival of crowning, the Pythian Games were instituted to commemorate the slaughter of the dragon. Like it, they originally held at every eighth year. The two festivals were celebrated nearly at the same time of the year, and the representative of Apollo, in the one of the victors, in the other, were adorned with crowns made from the same sacred laurel. In short, the two festivals appear to have been in origin substantially identical. The distinction between them may have arisen when the Delphians decided to hold the Ruthian Games every fourth instead of every eighth year. We may fairly suppose, therefore, that the leaf-crowned victors of the Ruthian Games, like the laurel-wreathed boy in the festival of crowning, formerly acted the part of the god himself. But if, in the beginning, these actors in the sacred drama wore wreaths of oak instead of laurel, it seems to follow that the deity whom they personated were the oak god Zeus, rather than the laurel god Apollo, which again we may infer that Delphi was a sanctuary of Zeus, and the oak before it became the shrine of Apollo and the laurel. Substitution of the laurel for the oak But why should the crown of oak have ceased to be the badge of victory? And why should a wreath of laurel have taken its place? The abandonment of the oak crown may have been a consequence of the disappearance of the oak itself from the neighbourhood of Delphi. In Greece, as in Italy, the deciduous trees have for centuries been retreating up the mountain sides before the advance of the evergreens. When the last venerable oak, the rustling of whose leaves in the breeze, have long since been listened to as oracular, finally succumbed through age, and was laid low by a storm, the priests may have cast about for a tree of another sort to take its place. Yet they sought it neither in the lower woods of the valley, nor in the dark forests which clothe the upper slopes of Parnassus by the frowning cliffs of Delphi. Legend ran that after the slaughter of the dragon, Apollo would purge himself from the stain of blood in the romantic vale of Temp, where the Peneus flows smoothly in a narrow defile between the lofty woods, deeps of Olympus and Ossa. Here the god crowned himself with a laurel wreath, and thither, accordingly, at the festival crowning, his human representative went to pluck the laurel from his brows. The custom, though Dallas ancient, can hardly have been original. We must suppose that in the beginning the dragon guarded tree, whether an oak or a laurel, grew at Delphi itself. Why should the laurel be chosen as a substitute for the oak? Mr. A. B. Cook has suggested a plausible answer. The laurel leaf resembles so closely the leaf of the ilex, or holm oak, both shape and colour, that an untrained observer may easily confuse two. The upper surface of both is a dark, glossy green. The lower surface shows a lighter tint. Nothing, therefore, could be more natural than to make the new wreath out of leaves which looked so like the old oak leaves that substitution might almost pass undetected. Whether at Thebes, as at Delphi, the laurel had ousted the oak from the place of honour at the festival of the slaying of the dragon, we cannot say. The oak has long disappeared from the low hills and flat ground in the neighbourhood of Thebes, but as late as the second century of our era, there was a forest of ancient oaks not many miles off at the foot of Mount Cithaeron. Hypothesis of octennial kings at Delphi and Thebes, who personated dragons or serpents. It has been conjectured that in ancient days, the persons who wore the wreath of laurel or oak at the octennial festivals of Delphi and Thebes were no other than the priestly kings who personated the god slew their predecessors in the guise of dragons, and reigned for a time in their stead. The theory certainly cannot be demonstrated, but there is a good deal of analogy in its favour. An eight years' tenure of the kingship at Delphi and Thebes would account for the similar tenure of the office at Sparta and Knossos, and if the kings of Knossos disguise themselves as bulls, there seems no reason why the kings of Delphi and Thebes should not have personated dragons or serpents. Animals sacred to royal families. In all these cases, the animal whose guise the king assumed would be sacred to the royal family. At first, the relation of the beast to the man would be direct and simple. The creature would be revered for some such reason as that for which a savage respects a certain species of animals. For example, because he believes that his ancestors were beasts of the same sort, or that the souls of his dead are lodged in them. In latter times, the sanctity of the species would be explained by saying that a god had, at some time, 
and for some reason rather assume the form of an animal. Greek stories of the transformation of gods into beasts point to a custom of sacred marriage in which the actors masqueraded as animals. It is probably not without significance that in Greek mythology, the gods in general, and Zeus in particular, are commonly said to have submitted to this change of shape for the purpose of prosecuting a love adventure. Such stories may well reflect a custom of a sacred marriage at which the actors played the parts of the worshipable animals. With the growth of culture, these local worships, the relics of a barbarous age, will be explained away by tales of the loves of the gods, and gradually falling out of practice, would survive only as myths. Analogy of the Wolf Society of Arcadia to the Leopard Society of West Africa It is said that at the festival of the wolf god Zeus, heard every nine years on the wolf mountain in Arcadia, a man tasted the bowel of the human victim mixed with the bowels of animals, and having tasted it, he was turned into a wolf and remained a wolf for nine years. When he changed back again to a man, if in the interval, he had abstained from eating human flesh. The tradition points to the existence of a society of cannibal wolf worshippers, one or more of whom impersonated and were supposed to embody the sacred animal for periods of nine years together. Their theory and practice would seem to have agreed with those of the human leopard societies of Western Africa, whose members disguise themselves in the skins of leopards with sharp claws of steel. In that guise, they attack and kill men in order to eat their flesh or to extract powerful charms from their bodies. The mode of gaining recruits is like that of the Greek wolf society. When a visitor came to a village inhabited by a leopard society, he was invited to partake of food in which was mixed a small quantity of human flesh. The guest all unsuspectingly partook of the repast, and was afterwards told that human flesh formed one of the ingredients of the meal and that it was then necessary that he should join the society, which was invariably done. As the ancient Greeks thought that a man might be turned into a wolf, so these negroes believe that he can be changed into a leopard, and like the Greeks, some of them fancy that if the transformed man abstains during his transformation from preying on his fellows, he can regain his human shape, but that if he ever once laps human blood, he must remain a leopard forever. Legend of the Transformation of Cadmus and Harmonia into Serpents The hypothesis that the ancient kings of Thebes and Delphi had for their sacred animal the serpent or dragon, and claimed kinship with this creature, derives some countenance from the tradition that at the end of their lives Cadmus and his wife Harmonia quitted Thebes and went to reign over a tribe of Enchileans or Elmen in Illyria, where they were both finally transformed into dragons or servants. To the primitive mind, an eel is a water serpent. It can hardly, therefore, be an accident that the serpent killer afterwards reigned over a tribe of eel men and himself became a serpent at last. Moreover, according to one account, his wife Harmonia was a daughter of the very dragon which he slew. The tradition would fit in well with the hypothesis that the dragon or serpent was a sacred animal of the old royal house of Thebes and that the kingdom fell to him who slew his predecessor and married his daughter. We have seen reason to think that such a mode of succession to the throne was common in antiquity. Transmigration of the souls of the dead into servants The story of the final transformation of Cadmus and Harmonia into snakes may be a relic of a belief and the souls of the dead kings and queens of Thebes transmigrated into the bodies of servants, just as Caffrey kings turn at death into boa constrictors or deadly black snakes. Indeed, the notion that the souls of the dead lodge in serpents is widely spread in Africa and Madagascar. Other African tribes believe that their dead kings and chiefs turn to lions, leopards, hyenas, pythons, hippopotamuses, or other creatures, and the animals are respected and spared accordingly. In like manner, the Semang and other wild tribes of the Malay Peninsula imagine that the souls of their chief priests and magicians transmigrate at death into the bodies of certain wild beasts, such as elephants, tigers, and rhinoceroses, and that in their bestial form the dead men extend a benign protection to their living human kinsfolk. 
Kings claim kinship with the most powerful animals. Even during their lifetime, kings in British society sometimes claim kingship with the most formal beasts of the country. Thus, the royal family of Dahomey specially worships a leopard. Some of the king's wives are distinguished by the title of leopard wives, and on state occasions they wear stripped cloths to resemble the animal. One king of Dahomey, on whom the French made war, bore the name of Shark. Hence in art he was represented sometimes with a shark's body and a human head, sometimes with a human body and the head of a shark. The Trocadero Museum at Paris contains the wooden images of three kings of Dahomey who reigned during the 19th century and who are all represented partially in human and partially in animal form. One of them, Guizot, bore the surname of the cock, and his image represents him as a man covered with feathers. His son, Guilel, who succeeded him on the throne, was surnamed the Lion, and his effigy is that of a lion rampant with tail raised and hair on his body, but with human feet and hands. Guleil was succeeded on the throne by his son, Bihanzin, who was surnamed the Shark, and his effigy betrays him standing upright with the head and body of a fish, the fins and scales being carefully represented, while his arms and legs are those of a man. Again, of King and Benin was called Panther, and a bronze statue of him, now in the Anthropological Museum at Berlin, represents him with a panther's whiskers. Such portraits furnish an exact parallel of what I conceive to be the true story of the Minotaur. On the Gold Coast of Africa, a powerful ruler is commonly addressed as O Elephant or O Lion, and one of the titles of the King of Ashanti mentioned at great ceremonies is Bori, the name of Venomous Snake. As we argue that King David belonged to a serpent family, and that the brazen serpent, which down to the time of Ezekiel, was worshipped with fumes of burning incense, represented the old sacred animal of his house. In Europe, the bull, the serpent, and the wolf will naturally be on the list of royal beasts. The Serpent and the Royal Animal at Athens and Salamis Now the king's soul was believed to pass a death into the sacred animal, a custom on a rise of keeping live creatures of the species in captivity and revering them as the souls of dead rulers. This would explain the Athenian practice of keeping a sacred servant in the Acropolis and feeding it with honey cakes, for the servant was identified with Erythonius or Erechtheus, one of the ancient kings of Athens, of whose palace some vestiges have been discovered in recent times. The creature was supposed to guard the citadel. During the Persian invasion, a report that the serpent had left its honey cake untasted was one of the strongest reasons which induced the people to abandon Athens to the enemy. They thought that the holy reptile had forsaken the city. Again, Cecrops, the first king of Athens, is said to have been half serpent and half man. In art, he is represented as a man from the waist upwards, while the lower part of his body consists of the coils of a serpent. It has been suggested that, like Erechtheus, he was identical with the serpent on the Acropolis. Once more we are told that Cythrius gained the kingdom of Salamis by slaying a snake which ravaged the island, but that after his death he, like Cadmus, appeared in the form of the reptile. Some said that he was a man who received the name of snake on account of his cruelty. Such tales may preserve reminiscence of kings who assumed the style of serpents in their lifetime and who believed to transmigrate into serpents after death. By the dragons of Thebes and Delphi, the Athenian serpent appears to have been conceived as a creature of the waters. For the serpent man, Erechtheus, was identified with the water god Poseidon. And in his temple, the Erechtheum, where the serpent lived, there was a tank which went by the name of the Sea of Erechtheus. The wedding of Cadmus and Harmonia at Thebes may have been a dramatic representation of the marriage of the sun and moon at the end of the eight-year cycle. If the explanation of the eight-year cycle which I have adopted holds good for Thebes and Delphi, the octennial festivals held at these places probably had some reference to the sun and moon, and may have comprised a sacred marriage of these luminaries. The solar character of Apollo, whether original or adventitious, leads some countenance to this view, but at both Delphi and Thebes the god was apparently an intruder who asserted the place of an older god or hero at the festival. At Thebes, that older hero was Cadmus. Now Cadmus was a brother of Europa, who appears to have been a personification of the moon conceived in the form of a cow. 
who travelled westward seeking his lost sister until he came to Delvi, where the oracle bade him give up the search and follow a cow which had the white mark of the full moon on its flank. Wherever the cow fell down exhausted, there he was to take up his abode and found a city. Following the cow in the directions of the oracle, he built Thebes. Have we not here, in another form, the myth of the moon persuaded and at last overtaken by the sun, and the famous wedding of Cadmus and Harmonia, to attend, which all the gods came down from heaven, may it not have been at once the mythical marriage of the great luminaries and the ritual marriage of the king and queen of Thebes masquerading by the king and queen of Knossos in the character of the lights of heaven at the octennial festival which celebrated and symbolized the conjunction of the sun and moon after their long separation their harmony after eight years of discord a better name for the bride at such a wedding could hardly have been chosen than harmonia this theory confirmed by the astronomical symbols carried by the laurel bearer at the octennial festival of laurel bearing this theory is supported by a remarkable feature of the festival at the head of the procession immediately in front of the laurel bearer walked a youth who carried in his hands a staff of olive wood draped with laurels and flowers to the top of the staff was fastened a bronze globe with smaller globes hung from it to the middle of the staff were attached a globe of medium size and three hundred and sixty-five purple ribbons, while the lower part of the staff was swathed in a saffron pall. The largest globe, we are told, signified the sun, the small of the moon, and the smallest of the stars, and the purple ribbons stood for the course of the year, being equal in number to the days comprised in it. The choir of virgins who followed the Lord bearer singing hymns may have represented the muses who were said to have sung and played at the marriage of Cadmus and Harmonia. Down to late times, the very spot in the marketplace was shown where they had discoursed their heavenly music. We may conjecture that the procession of the laurel bearing was preceded by a dramatic performance of the slaying of the dragon, and that it was followed by a pageant representative of the nuptials of Cadmus and Harmonia in the presence of the gods. On this hypothesis, Harmonia, the wife of Cadmus, is only another form of his sister Europa, both of them being personifications of the moon. Accordingly, in the Samothracian Mysteries, in which the marriage of Cadmus and Harmonia appears to have been celebrated, it was Harmonia, and not Europa, whose wanderings were dramatically represented. The gods who quitted Olympus to grace the wedding by their presence were probably represented in the rites, whether celebrated at Thebes or in Samothrace, by men and women attired as deities. In like manner, at the marriage of a pharaoh, the courtiers masqueraded in the likeness of the animal-headed Egyptian gods. The Olympic festival seems to have been based on the octennial cycle. Within historical times, the great Olympic festival was always held at intervals of four, not of eight years. Yet it too would seem to have been based on the octennial cycle, for it always fell on a full moon at intervals of fifty and of forty-nine lunar months alternately. Thus the total number of lunar months comprised in two successive Olympiads was ninety-nine, which is precisely the number of lunar months in the octennial cycle. It is possible that, as K.O. Muller conjectured, the Olympic Games may, like the Pythian, have originally been celebrated at intervals of eight years instead of four years. Mythical Marriage of the Sun and Moon at Olympia if that was so, analogy would lead us to infer that the festival was associated with a mythical marriage of the sun and moon. A reminiscence of such a marriage appears to survive in the legend that Endymion, the son of the first king of Elis, had fifty daughters by the moon, and that he set his sons to run a race for the kingdom at Olympia. For, as scholars have already perceived, Endymion is a sunken sun overtaken by the moon below the horizon, and his fifty daughters by her are the fifty lunar months of an Olympiad, or more strictly speaking, of every alternate Olympiad. If the Olympic festival always fell, as many authorities have maintained, at the first full moon after the summer solstice, the time would be eminently appropriate for a marriage of the luminaries, since both of them might be conceived to be at the prime of their vigour. The Olympic victors, male and female, may originally have represented Zeus and Hera, or the sun and moon, and have reigned as divine king and queen for four or eight years. 
It has been ingeniously argued by Mr. A. B. Cook that the Olympic victors in the chariot race were the lineal successors of the old rulers, the living embodiments of Zeus, whose claims for the kingdom were decided by a race, as in the legend of Endymion and his sons, and who reigned for a period of four, perhaps originally of eight years, after which they had again, like Onomaus, to stake their right to the throne on the issue of a chariot race. Certainly the four-horse car in which they raced assimilated them to the sun-god, who was commonly supposed to drive through the sky in a similar fashion, while the crown of sacred olive, which decked their brows, likened them to the great god Zeus himself, whose glorious image at Olympia wore a similar wreath. But if the olive-crowned victor in the men's race at Olympia represented Zeus, it becomes probable that the olive-crowned victor in the girls' race, which was held every fourth year at Olympia in honour of Hera, represented in like manner the god's wife, and that in former days the two together acted the part of the god and the goddess in that sacred marriage of Zeus and Hera, which is known to have been celebrated in many parts of Greece. This conclusion is confirmed by the legend that the girls' race was instituted by Hippodamia in gratitude for a marriage with Pelops, for if Pelops as victor in the chariot race represented Zeus, his bride would naturally play the part of Hera. But under the names of Zeus and Hera, the pair of Olympic victors would seem to have really personated the sun and moon, who were the true heavenly bridegroom and bride of the ancient octennial festival. In the decline of ancient civilization, the old myth of the marriage of the great luminaries was revived by the crazy fanatic and libertine, the emperor Heliogabalus, who fetched the image of Astarte, regarded as the moon goddess from Carthage to Rome, and wedded to the image of the Syrian sun-god, commanding all men of Rome and throughout Italy to celebrate with joy and festivity the solemn nuptials of the god of the sun with the goddess of the moon. End of section 5